You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Let's dive into the book of Esther. So I'm going to break up the reading into about four different parts uh, this morning, uh, from Esther chapter 2, 19 through the end of chapter 3. There are times, if you think about it, there are times where compliance and conviction come face to face, right? You, you have to make a decision. Do I comply here or do I respond to my convictions here? And there are times where compliance is a good thing, right? Can save lives in that matter. And there are other times where compliance is a sinful thing and we have to really regard uh, whether or not we should do it, Right? Should we comply to a sinful behavior or should we respond to godly obedience? So I was trying to think of how to kind of illustrate this out. Have you ever, I know quite a few people have gone down to Arkansas and hiked and gone to many places. There's a place down there called Hawksbill Crag. It's extremely popular and it's, it's kind of a place where everyone down here in the southern Missouri and Arkansas area will travel to and kind of, it's a hot destination for thrill seekers and hikers and I went there a few years ago, and this, this crag sits hundreds of feet above the, the floor of the Ozark Mountains, and you can see for miles and miles. It's, it really is breathtaking. But every year, the sheriff's department down in that area gets about 10 to 15 phone calls a year of people getting hurt or falling off the crag and dying. It's, it's really insane. And the trail has warning signs saying, you need to make sure that you're not running around, that you're holding on to kids, that you stay away from the edge, that you're compliant with these things so that you don't die, right? So as I made, as I made it to the crag, I want to let you know, I have a fear of heights. My palms began to get really sweaty instantly, just as, at the thought of even being anywhere near it. My knees were weak. And as I was walking out onto the crag, I was like, it was like I was walking out and just testing the ice, making sure I don't fall through just slowly as these hikers are just like pouncing past me. But I slowly make it out. And I kind of felt like I was on the, in the movie, Last of the Mohicans, when the battle scene is up on the mountains and they're like knocking each other off the cliff. And I was like, I'm for sure going to be one of those guys. That's what I was thinking. I'm done for. But I had every intention to be compliant. I was not going to risk getting to the edge. I was not going to run around. I was not going to play. I was going to get there alive, and I was going to leave alive as well. And at the same time, as I normally do, I'm always thinking, if there's that one crazy person from Arkansas that wants to try to push me off this thing, how am I going to deflect and throw them off instead of them getting me? Because you never know, people from Arkansas, right? Speaking of Arkansas... We have in this scene here Mordecai, who is the father cousin of Esther in this situation. And so he is kind of essentially approaching the crag of his life. He's approaching this really, really hostile situation, this really hostile scene. He's been a good, compliant city of Susa, the, the Persian capital, right? He's most likely an official. He operates under the leadership of the king. He's always at the king's gate. And so up to this point, you can see that Mordecai is really a fan of, of King Assyrus. 
He doesn't give him any pushback. He doesn't question him. He really loves this king. However, today, he's going to come face to face with a new leader in the kingdom who is going to challenge Mordecai, and Mordecai is going to have to answer the question, am I willing to be compliant? Am I willing to be compliant at the cost of my life? And so he'll come to face to face with really that moral dilemma, a righteous obligation and a responsibility. He will have to choose between compliance to a pagan ruler or obedience to godly conviction. Compliance to a pagan ruler or obedience to godly conviction. And so I say godly conviction is godly conviction is over ungodly compliance. We ought to choose godly conviction over ungodly compliance. And so let me read these first verses for today in chapter 2, verse 19 through the end of chapter 2, verse 23. It says, Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Osiris. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to the Queen Esther, to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And so we see here Mordecai's loyalty to the king, his loyalty to the king. He is sitting in verse 19 at the king's gate. To sit at the king's gate means you have some sort of power. You're some sort of official. You have some sort of say in the community, though the book of Esther never tells us specifically what his position is. But the king's gate is going to be, is really the setting of this entire scene. Everything from this point on in today's sermon will be really at the king's gate. But you see something also. When, we, when he mentions Mordecai here, the mentioning of Esther and really her loyalty to Mordecai's loyalty. So as the leader goes, so goes the follower. Or as the shepherd goes, so go the sheep. As dad goes, so goes daughter. That's what you see here with Mordecai, that he has an insane amount of influence, good influence over Esther. And why wouldn't he? He adopted her. He brought her in as his own, as his own daughter. And so his loyalty to the king became her loyalty to the king, which made sense, which is why we saw Esther be so quickly uh, and easily go to King Osiris and follow through with really the pagan beauty pageant, if you will, and not really give any pushback, but do what she could to win the king over. And that's exactly what she did. And so her loyalty, which follows after the loyalty of Mordecai, would ultimately lead her to the king and will ultimately be one of the reasons why the king's life is spared. And so there's this plot in verse 21. People always get up in arms about somebody else in power and their authority and and they want what they have. And so here you have two of the king's eunuchs being frustrated with the king and so they devise a plot to kill him. And they communicate about it in a very unwise way, in a very peculiar place. Why would you openly talk about it at the king's gate? 
But they do. They talk about it there. They devise this plan. Mordecai overhears the conversation. And so he then, out of loyalty and love of the king, tells Queen Esther. And notice, that's her title now. Queen Esther. And then Queen Esther tells the king. The king hears this. Verse 23, he responds. He investigates. And it says that he hung those who were convicted on the gallows. Either one of two things. They were either hung by a rope or two, they were, um, uh, they were impaled by spears. Either way, it was a display for the kingdom, for the empire to see that you don't cross the king. You don't mess with the king. And so these acts were then recorded in the chronicles of the king. And this is something that the king would do. Whenever somebody would do something that is stand out on behalf of the king, especially saving the life of the king, it would be recorded in the chronicles of what took place. And the king knew because Queen Esther said it was Mordecai who did it. She dropped his name and that would be important. And so you would expect at this point that the king would come around Mordecai and celebrate him, celebrate what he did, celebrate how he saved his life. But you don't see that happening. For some reason, it became an oversight. The king got too busy perhaps, forgot about it, but that will come in handy later. Honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. This is something we see in the New Testament. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter tells us, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And he's talking about the emperor of Rome. He's talking about a ruthless emperor, if you will, one who is not to be crossed. If you cross this emperor, you will die. One who was not exactly a fan of Christianity. And later on, history tells us that Peter was crucified upside down underneath the rule of the emperor. And yet Peter tells the disciples, honor the emperor. He's not telling us to comply to sinful behaviors. He's not telling us to comply Uh, just to win them over, but he's saying honor them because they are an image bearer who hold a significant position of authority and power. And by honoring them as a follower of Jesus, what you're showing them is that your ultimate allegiance is not to the emperor. It's not to a human king, but it's ultimately to the king of kings. And so it'd be under this leadership that Peter would die. But I wonder... How are we, as 21st century Americans, Southwest Missourians, Springfieldians, honoring those who are in power and authority, if you will? I mean, it's no coincidence that we're in this chapter during election cycle, right? We all maybe watched the debate the other day, and we were all just uh, cringing quite a bit. We're like, okay, this is what we have to go with, right? I understand it's not only two people, but mainly a two-party system, right? And so our default is to just blast people, to blast Trump, to blast Biden, to blast our senators, to blast our governors, to blast everybody that we don't like. But the gospel tells us that we are to honor them. How do we honor them? If we were to open up our social media, whatever platform that is, Would what you have to say about governing authorities be a sign of honor towards them or dishonor? Would you be representing Christ in how you talk about other people, especially positions of authority? 
Or would you be dishonoring Christ? Look, I know it's easy for us because we have freedom of speech. And so we really value the freedom of speech. But at the end of the day, we are to be compelled by not our own individual freedoms, but by the freedoms of, that Christ gives us. We have an allegiance to a God who is superior to the emperor, who is superior to any king. And we are to show him honor because why? We were enemies of him. And yet he showed hospitality and came down to us and made us uh, citizens of his kingdom. And so we are to show honor to other sinners, to those around us, to those over us. And how about our stewardship of influence? Most of us have influence in one way or the other. Maybe you own a business. Maybe you're a manager. Maybe you're just an employee or you're a spouse, you're a parent, you're a teacher, whatever it is. I'm sure there's somebody in your life that you may have some sort of influence over, even if it is just a child. We all are designed in such a way to follow and to lead, right? But what about our influence? How are we stewarding it properly? Are we using it for the glory of God or are we using it for our own selfish gain? I mean, look at Mordecai's loyalty here. It became also Esther's loyalty and maybe to a fault. Maybe she was too loyal, right? But look at those under our influence and see how loyal they might be to you. And maybe you can call this influence something else. Let's just call it mm, discipleship. Discipleship is really your influence over somebody to teach them all that Christ has commanded, to show them the way, to influence them, to walk in the steps of Christ, in the manner of Christ. So whether you're a boss or a, a coworker, a student, a teammate, a parent, a spouse, you have potential discipleship all around you. Discipleship is not showing up just here or showing up to a class and working through a book of the Bible per se. That's part of it. But discipleship is life, which is why we say in life together. We have relationship. We have influence with folks. And so are we using stewarding that influence for the sake of the kingdom? If you want to measure how good you are or not good you are at making disciples or your influence, just pay attention to those around you. And see what they think. See what those under your influence think or talk about. Or what they make their lives about as a result of your influence and leadership. That can be, ugh, that can be frustrating to see, right? Or think about. Or think of how you have had maybe no influence. Because you've avoided any opportunity or responsibility to influence anyone else towards Christ. You've just decided to be passive about it just to avoid it because it's too difficult. And so at some point, your loyalty to the world, world around you will come face to face with God's word. And in that day, you have to choose, do I comply with the world or will I be obedient to God's will? And so we begin to see Mordecai's conviction, chapter three, verses one through six. And so after these things, after the eunuchs are tried and put to death, after these things, King Assyrius pronounced Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. 
And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Assyrus. So Haman comes onto the scene, or some call Haman. But Haman is introduced... And you would expect at this point, okay, Mordecai is going to be, you know, recognized and celebrated, maybe rise to power. But no, out of nowhere comes this guy named Haman. And so he's promoted. We have no idea why. We're not exactly sure what this guy has done before. But the point is this. He has risen to power. And we have some information about who he is and where he comes from. We'll get to that in a moment. But Haman Haman demands all of his servants at the king's gate to bow down to him. There's definitely an ego here, a pride here with his power. Essentially, having the position he does, he has the power of the king at his own disposal. So to bow to Haman is essentially to bow to the king. And so all of his subjects bow, bow down to him, except for one, Mordecai. And instantly you're thinking, oh, because Mordecai's frustrated, he's angry. Hey, this should have been my promotion. Why did Haman get it? I should have gotten it. Maybe he's just had a bad day, several days. But it just doesn't give us a real explanation for the refusal. And so he refuses for days and days. And Haman doesn't know this right away. It's not like the first time that Mordecai didn't bow down, that Haman was like, hey, I see you not bowing down over there. No, this happened multiple times and there was multiple conversations. The servants were essentially asking, hey, Mordecai, why are you not doing this? Hey, man, you should do this. We all know the consequences of not doing this. Are you sure? Mordecai had his words as to why he wasn't going to. The servants took those words after a a period of time of discussion, relayed them to Haman to see if those words would stand. And so it's kind of confusing. Haman had no problem bowing to the king, but now he has a problem bowing down to really his number two man. It doesn't seem unwise really to just allow your ego maybe to flare up to a lesser ranked official in this situation. I mean, like just bow down to him just like you would the king, right? No big deal. But I think we're missing the bigger picture of this story in Esther. Genealogies are interesting. They're interesting, especially in the Bible, because there's a story that goes along with it. When people are named in the Bible and their ancestry is highlighted, it's not just for the purpose of going, oh, they're from Missouri or they're from New York. Oh, oh, they're Italian or it's not just for that purpose, but it's for the purpose of story. There's a story because when you look at the genealogy here of Haman, It's not just going back to dad and grandpa and great-grandpa. It's going way back, centuries back. 
And it was the same with Mordecai. The stories of Mordecai and Haman or Haman go back to King Saul and King Agag. If you remember when we talked about Mordecai, we talked about him being related to King Saul. But now we begin to see that Haman is related to King Agag. This story of their history, of their bloodline, of their family, goes all the way back even to Exodus chapter 17. As Exodus 17, if you were to go and read verses 14 through 15, you see that Israel goes into battle against the Amalekites. The Amalekites. And as they're going to battle, Moses, as he would raise the staff in the air, Israel would have uh, success over them, right? And as soon as his arm fell down, that's when Israel would start to be overtaken. So his assistants would help Moses raise the staff. And Joshua went out. Joshua wasn't a leader yet. He went out and he fought. And it says this in verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. It is in the book of Numbers that we hear that the king of the Amalekites is King Agag. So really to hear the Agagites is the same thing as Amalekites. So Amalekites, Agagites, that's what we're looking at here. When King Saul comes into power, when he comes into power, he fails. He fails at something that God has called him to do. The Lord raised up Saul as the first king of Israel, and he did it through the prophet of Samuel. And the Lord remembered, it says in 1 Samuel 15, that the Lord remembered the Amalekites and how they were a problem as Israel was coming out of Egypt and how they went to war with them. And so the Lord then commanded King Saul to destroy them. King Agag was over the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. So King Saul went to war. And the instruction by the Lord was that he would destroy everything. Leave nothing behind. Leave no survivors, nothing. We're going to completely destroy the enemy of God here. And what does King Saul do? He saves King Agag's life. He, do, he spares his life. The prophet Samuel is furious. The Lord is furious. So Samuel takes care of business himself, beheads the king. So Agag is no more. But then from that point on, Saul is cursed as the king. And so what we see here is a generational battle or enmity between God's people and those who are enemies of God. And so there, there it is. There's enmity between God's people and the enemies. And it goes back, yes, to Exodus, but it even goes further back than Exodus. It goes back to the garden in Genesis chapter 3. If you remember that when Adam and Eve sinned, God spoke to the woman saying that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent, but the seed of the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, meaning this, 
There's always going to be an enemy and there's always going to be God's people. And throughout the entire Old Testament, you're going to constantly see God's people come into war and to battle, if you will, with God's enemies. And God's enemies are going to constantly come and they're going to constantly bruise God's people. But God is going to crush the enemy. And so then again, we see this picture right here. We know that in the book of Genesis that God promised Abraham an offspring, an eternal offspring who would come, who would be the eternal head-crushing Savior. We know that promise was made unto David as well. We know that promise was made unto the prophet. So Mordecai, surely he remembers exactly these stories. He's a Jew. He remembers exactly who King Agag was. He remembers the promise made to Abraham that a savior would ultimately come. And so maybe now Mordecai stands there, stands there wondering, what is God going to do? And so the seed of the serpent is standing before Israel and Mordecai has to make a decision. Comply with Haman and honor the king of Persia. Or stand true to his convictions of God's eternal promise. Risk insulting the king or bow the knee to the God of Israel instead. So for Mordecai, compliance and conviction of God's word were coming face to face. They were coming to a head. And so the hope of the promised offspring of Abraham had not only come up to Mordecai. Now Mordecai is faced with the reality that the offspring would surely come after And the offspring would only come after as a result of faith. So to respond in conviction and obedience to the Lord is to respond in faith that the offspring of Abraham would still come, even though Mordecai has no idea how. I'm sure he has no idea. And so truly the life of God's covenant people will be left in the hands of a merciful God. It's like a wave came over him as he was standing before Haman, recalling the covenants of God for his people throughout the ages. And now he stands wondering, is God going to come through? And so he responds in faith. I would not say there might be a little bit of ego flare up here with Mordecai not bowing down to Haman. But I see it as in, in context to the Bible as a whole, as an act of faith. This is an act of faith. In what ways is obedience to God's will coming face to face with your compliances and it's convicting you to be obedient to him? You see, maybe you've been compliant with the world. You've been compliant with the way the world thinks and how the world does things. And now you come face to face with it. You've been doing it for a while, but now God's word and his promises, his story is being pressed up against your compliance and now you're convicted. That's what conviction is. If Mordecai had no problem bending the knee and complying with the king, why would it be such a deal to comply with Haman, right? And isn't Haman just a a small guy in comparison to the king? It'd just be a smaller sin than the big sin, right? How often do we put more focus, if you will, on the smaller sins and allow the big sins to just carry on. Right? I would argue that Mordecai and Esther gave in to paganism 
had complied with paganism in some way in these first couple chapters, and now we're going to begin to see a shift in their thinking, right? So it was okay for Mordecai to be compliant with the big sin, the big king, but now with the little one? Jesus made a point in Matthew chapter 23, verses 24, verse 24, when he talked about the Pharisees swallowing camels, but straining out the gnats. You're like, well, that's, not, that's a weird image. Yes, that's exactly the point. Swallowing camels, but straining out the gnats. The point is, they worked really hard to strain out the small sins, to pay attention to all the small, little detailed sins, and being adamant to call people to repentance for those sins, but all the while they were just kind of swallowing whole the big sins and paying no regard to them. You see Jesus talk about this another way when he says to be careful not to point out the speck in your brother's eye when you have a giant two by four sticking out of your own face. That's the idea. So are we excusing larger sins in life, but maybe buckling down on the smaller ones? We have we we are accepting of larger sins, but man, we buckle down on the smaller ones because we don't want to be concerned. We don't want to be deemed legalist. Often we point out smaller sins because we want to hide the bigger sins in our life. It's also easier to point out the sins of others than than to really and, and avoid our own. Right. Mordecai may have been compliant to a fault. Like we can see his sin pretty clearly here. It almost seems hypocritical, right? You would bow down to the king, but you won't bow down to Haman. But when he was reminded with God's covenant promises, he had to put that loyalty to the king to the side. And so that's the lesson for us then. We all fail at living holy lives. We fail at it. None of us are perfect, though we have a perfect Savior who perfects our salvation in us. We commit sins that are both big and small alike, but when God convicts us, the question then is, what are we going to do about it? We can sit here and nitpick at Mordecai and how he overlooked his big sin but paid attention to the small sin, and we could do the same thing, but the question is not that. The question is, what are you going to do when God convicts you? Will we turn from our sin and turn to Jesus? And while some call it hypocrisy, some the Bible calls it obedience. And maybe you have some regrets. Maybe you would be like Mordecai, man, I regret, you know, just kind of giving into this, just kind of playing along. Maybe you've made some decisions in life that you you were compliant with the world in making those decisions. But understand this and know this from the Bible that God always grants mercy. We learn that in Lamentations. His mercies are new every morning. So he gives you the ability and the opportunity to respond then with obedience and faithfulness. God's not using Mordecai, and he won't use Esther because they're awesome, because they're perfect, because they got their stuff together. They are sinners. And when they're met with a holy God, they then respond in those convictions and move towards him, not away from him. So today is the day for us to not wallow in our failures, to not just think about how much we're a big sinner or a small sinner or whatever kind of sinner, but for us to lean into the promises of God, to repent, 
to move forward by His grace and His mercy. Because we know in the New Testament, to ignore conviction is to quench the Holy Spirit. We're called not to quench the Spirit. And when we're convicted of sin and of God's Word, and if we ignore that, if we quench it, that is sinful. So embrace your conviction. When you embrace your conviction, you then find yourself in step with the Spirit and not against Him. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So then let's walk in freedom from this day on. You can do that. You can leave today free in Christ. And listen, it's a life-giving thing to hold on to the promises of God. It's a life-giving thing to hold on to them. The story of the head-bruising Savior has been in the works before you. It's in work in you right now. And it will continue to work after you until you will be made perfect with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And so, in other words, the head-bruising Savior that was promised in Genesis chapter 3 is still at work putting your sin to death even today. We talked about that as intercession. That Jesus isn't just standing far off. He's not just stiff-arming us. But He is actively applying the blood, His own blood that He died, uh, that He poured out on the cross to our sins, both big and small, every single second of every single day. And that's why we feel conviction when we do sin because our sin is coming in contact with the righteous blood of Christ. So understand, Jesus is still at work to save you. Quit putting so much pressure upon yourself to have to be perfect. Just be faithful and obedient. It's simple. So cling then to the promises of God. And when you cling to the promises of God, it begins to free you from your guilt, free you from your shame, free you from vain works to try to make God happy with you. Cling to the word of God and you will begin to see your life correct course, if you will. But there will come a time when the world will come against you and it will become painful and there will be suffering in your obedience, when that happens, do not fall to despair. Even Christ had to suffer. He had to endure the cross for the sake of our salvation. And so as you act in obedience, you have to continue to remember that the Lord is leaving nothing out of His control. He's leaving nothing out of His control because Mordecai could be standing here going, you know what, oh man, I've got to fix something here. But he can't. All he can do is just act in faith. God's word will be completed. His plan of salvation will be satisfied. The promises of hope and freedom, he freely gives. So you cannot control the outcome of your days, but just trust in the one who can. And so we begin to see now the lot and how it falls in verses 7 through 11. Chapter 3. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Osiris, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Osiris, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. 
Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Ammon, Hamam, the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Haman doesn't just act impulsively right away. He takes the next 12 months to really consider what it is he's going to do. He doesn't want the fall of Mordecai to come on himself in his own kind of way. He wants to act cunningly, if you will, to come against Mordecai, but even more than that, against all of his people. He takes a whole year, essentially, plotting, planning, casting lots, reaching out to the pagan gods of the stars, seeking for them to, be, to give direction on how it is he is to conduct this sort of plan and the timing of it. And this is where we begin to take note and see uh, the, the makings of the Jewish festival uh, Purim. And we'll get into that later on. But this is where the first part of that word comes pure, meaning to cast lots. And so Haman is assuming that his pagan rituals and beliefs are, are in charge, that he has control over this situation. He's got Mordecai right under his thumb. He can do whatever he wants. But we all know that the Bible tells us differently. It says in Proverbs sixteen thirty three that the Lord will choose, or that it is the lot that is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The Lord is in charge of the way that the lot would fall. The Lord will be sure that Haman's steps are established to the Lord's will. It says in Proverbs as well, that the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Mordecai doesn't know exactly how he's going to act or what he's going to do from this point on, but the Lord will even be with his steps. The Lord is 100% in control. And so Haman is crafty in his plot against the Jews. Think of how he communicates to the king. He's extremely vague in what he he says. He's shallow in his description. He says, there's a certain people. He doesn't say these are the Jews, right? The, The Persians know who the Jews are. They were held in captivity, right? He says, there's a certain people out there. And then he plays to the king's ego. You know, they don't keep the king's laws, You're the king, almighty, great, and wonderful king. They don't keep your laws. And he reminds the king, you mustn't be crossed at all. It's not to the king's benefit that you would tolerate them. It's not to your profit that you should tolerate these certain people. And just to show you how serious I am, I will pay a large, large sum of money to make sure that this is carried out. I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver, basically covering the probably up to half of the annual tax that would be received. And so the king really essentially asked no follow-up questions. He trusted Haman. This is a trusted advisor, if you will. And so he quickly agreed, handing over his ring, the signet ring, basically giving the power of the king to Haman so that whatever Haman decreed, it would be as though it was decreed by the king himself, sealed with his own ring. And so it's here that we find Haman 
just like Mordecai. He had every intention to respond out of his family story. You know, what Grandpa Agag couldn't finish, Haman would finish. And he would make it happen right here and now. This is something that we have to be aware of, that when we are obedient and we're not compliant to the world, the world will plot against us. And are you prepared for the plots against you and even your disciples when you stop complying with the world? When you lead your disciples to obedience in Christ? Because here's the thing. We don't know how things are going to play out. We have no insider's edition of the future, if you will. All we are told to do is to be faithful. But we know that it will cost something. Haman didn't talk to anyone for a full year. He was plotting essentially in his own mind. And so a year had gone by. Mordecai was just doing his thing. He was in the gate. He wasn't bowing down. He knew that uh, Haman didn't like that. He knew that there was some tension, but he really didn't know because there wasn't any immediate repercussions. And so roughly a year later is when Mordecai will find out. And so Haman's plotting was slow and it was in the making. He was crockpotting this thing. He wasn't hurrying up with it. So do not be surprised then, Christian, if your obedience now will result in pain and problems from the world, even if it's much later. I want us to pay attention to the level of opposition that Haman gives here in this story. You know, it would have been expected of him to come back to Mordecai and maybe cast Mordecai out, put Mordecai in jail or prison, or maybe even put him to death, right? But he doesn't. Haman turns up the dial a lot. And it's not just Mordecai that he's going after, but he wants to put all people who are associated with Mordecai, who think like Mordecai, who are of God's people, he wants to put them all to death. So when it comes to the gospel, we have to understand that that hostility, that enmity is intense between the seed of the serpent, the seed of Satan, his evil workers, and God and God's people. The enemy is seeking to kill, to destroy, and not just a person here and there, but all of God's people. There's a reason in Ephesians 6, Paul speaks of the weapons of the enemy being likened to flaming arrows. They're not, it's not Nerf guns. Like the enemy is trying to kill us. So some of us in the church think, man, maybe if I just play it safe, I'll be good. I can avoid. I'll never cross anyone. I won't have any enemies. But I want to assure you of one thing, that if you're a disciple of Jesus, you will always have enemies. You'll always have enmity with the world. The enemy will always come for you. Why? Because the world hates God. It's just a given. So you have no idea what the world will do if you don't comply. You have no idea if you'll be able to keep your job, if you'll be able to maintain your friends, continue to have relationships with your family, or if you'll be ridiculed on the internet or even lose your life. You have no idea what the outcomes are going to be when it comes to obedience. Those are all possible, but we have to be ready to suffer. We have to be ready to embrace the world, to kick back and push back on our obedience to Jesus. 
So what I want to do is just ask you to take a step of courage in obedience. Don't cower back. Don't, think, don't hide in the shadows thinking that you'll be okay, you'll be safe if you don't say anything. No, don't, don't step back, but lean into Christ. Take courage, be obedient, and leave the results up to God. That's the problem, I think, with a lot of our thinking, Amer- American or Western thinking, is that we plan and we strategize for a potential outcome. That's what we work for. Well, we need to just kind of get away from that a little bit and just be obedient and faithful and allow the one who is in control of all things to uh, bring the results of the outcome before us. So do not fear man, but fear the Lord instead. Because ultimately you have to ask yourself, who's in control? Is it the enemy or the Lord? We fear the enemy. We think the enemy's got supreme control, but really... He doesn't. We may be in exile. We may be exiles living in a home that is not our ultimate home as foreigners in a land of citizens of the kingdom of God. But that does not mean that God is out of control. God has full control. And I think often people like Mordecai come to a crossroads like this so that they might actually see again their God. And so the same for us. We come to really these crossroads where we have to face, either comply with the world or obey to God with the sole purpose of seeing our God more clearly. We have to let go of control. Let go of it. Following Jesus isn't necessarily family safe or fun for the whole family, if you will. In fact, Psalm forty-four twenty-two says, Yet for your sake we are killed All the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And so the final verses in 12 through 15, the decree that is written. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governor's over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Osiris and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. And so we see the decree written and sent to the provinces. In verse 12. So as we come into these final verses here in 12 through 15. So we have this this edict that was written. And the timing of this is unique. It says it was on the 13th day. Okay. The 13th day of this month in particular. The irony is thick. It is one day prior to the celebration of the Passover. The Passover begins on the 14th day. And so at the same time that the Jews would end up celebrating their Lord's deliverance 
from the Egyptians, a decree is going to be sent out to the Persians announcing the days that the Jew, the day that the Jews will be destroyed. It will be a day, one time. We are going to prepare for this 12 to 24 hour period when all the Jews will be completely wiped out. And that is, that is the amazing thing of what's going on. Amazing, not in like celebratory, but the fact that Haman had been planning and plotting this whole time and his, in his planning and plotting was not really just kind of like a couple waves of taking over the Jews, but really this extinction of the Jews at one time. And you see all these words here, annihilating them, destroying them, completely doing away with them, and to do it within one day. This wasn't going to be a campaign over several years, but one day. But if you pay attention to the story, you begin to see the wisdom of the Lord allowing time for this plan to come to fruition. So there's going to be another year, essentially, before this takes place. And it will be also within that year's time that Esther is able to act. And what will the um, Persians do? They will kill the Jews and they will plunder their goods, it says. Those 10,000 talents of silver don't seem like much in comparison to the riches we will get when the Jews are dead. It's essentially what we're seeing. And again, the irony of the Passover. It was the Israelites who plundered the Egyptians. And now Haman, acting like God and acting like the Persians are his people, he's going to act like God and say, let's plunder then the Israelites, the Jews. And then in verse 15, you read one of the most insidious verses in the Bible, at least in the book of Esther. And that is when the, the king and Haman sit down to have a drink after their great accomplishment. After sending out this edict to all the land to destroy the Jews, they're sitting down, having a cold one, thinking about all the goodness that they've accomplished and what they're going to accomplish. And when they began to start partying is when the city began to start being thrown into confusion. You have to understand the the empire of Persia was a multi-ethnic empire. It wasn't just dominated by one race or one ethnicity. It was very multi-ethnic and the Jews were very much a part of that community. Mordecai was an official, if you will, within the citadel. He had power. He had responsibility. So people liked Mordecai. People liked his family. They loved the Jews. And so now then to hear that all of these people that they love and know are going to be completely wiped out within one day causes insane confusion since they've had no issues this whole time. Where would this come from? Why would this be? Why would the king do this? I could only imagine at this point the heaviness the sorrow that fell upon Mordecai when he heard the news, the edict that was then passed throughout all the 127 provinces. How could he not say, oh, this is my fault. I should have just bowed down. Now I'm going to lose my family. I'm going to lose my friends. Everybody in all 127 provinces, all the Jews are now going to be dead as a result of me not just bowing down. I should have just bit the bullet and did it. Look, the enemy has counterfeit power. Counterfeit power with counterfeit riches coming to you and me, trying to convince us that they're equally as powerful, equally as rich, 
equally to Jesus. But they're not. What we don't realize is that the world's riches come at a cost, at a cost of our own lives in following Jesus. Think about Judas Iscariot. He played it safe. He played it safe. He turned Jesus over for silver. He avoided potential death for noncompliance. But his compliance did not make him a friend of the world, ultimately. When he realized that Jesus, his, his good buddy that he'd known for three years, was going to be killed, he tried to fix the problem. He tried to throw the money back. He just begged, please don't go through with it. But the chief priests refused. Judas, at the end of the day, got the riches of the world, but it proved to be a complete loss. 100% loss. Pay attention then to the counterfeits in life. Quickly be reminded by truth. I'm sure it hit Mordecai like a tidal wave of what he did, the repercussions of his obedience to God. Here's the outcome of my obedience. But Mordecai would have to quickly be grounded upon the truth and the promise of God's word. That would be the only thing that could sustain him from going completely mad or completely crazy. Mordecai could have had it easy. I mean, he had a nice career. He was successful. He was an official in the kingdom. His retirement was set. His daughter was the queen of Persia. I mean, what more could he accomplish in life? Had he just bowed down to Amon, he could have retired nicely and it would have been okay. But as you know and see, Mordecai felt that conviction. And in the face of all the riches, all the accomplishments, none of them would satisfied if he had turned against his God and his people. It was costly, but he knew it. So how might you need to open your eyes to see the counterfeit power and riches that are trying to enslave you, steal from you, or kill you? At what cost are you willing to follow the world? And at what cost are you willing to reject the world? Mordecai's faithfulness to God is resulting in the life of those he loves. And so really, your obedience is going to cost you something. We have to be ready and know as Christians that when we call people to discipleship, we are calling them to give their lives. It's not just something we say as a ritual, but it's true. And, and it's, it's a literal reality. Obedience is costly. When you influence those around you to follow Jesus, you are knowingly asking them to consider maybe losing their jobs, losing relationships, losing promotions, maybe access to certain programs, funds, monetary gains, and all of that is worth calling people to follow Jesus, is it? It's costly. A couple years ago, the elders and I, we all sat down and we started to think about the people that we are sending out to the nations and one family in particular that we're hoping to send out to a very hostile part of the world, hopefully within the next 12 months or so, 6 to 12 months, depending on COVID. And we asked ourselves, and I asked the elders, are you ready and willing to bear the burden, should the occasion rise, that the people we send out would be put to death for their faith in Jesus? Are you ready and willing to be the pastors of this church in Springfield, Missouri, who actively trained and prepared and sent people to go and die? To put them in harm's way? And... I'd say slowly and prayerfully, cautiously, but yet confidently, we all said, yes, we are. 
That's not a small thing to do. I know it's easy for us to say, to be kind of really absent from that thinking because we're not over there doing it. But we have to understand that that is what we're doing. When we dunk people in the water, if you will, we're calling them to lose their lives for the sake of Christ. And this isn't just a pastoral thing. We're the leaders of an organization, so it's on us. No, this is us as a family, as a unified people, a unit. That when our people go, and when we go, and there's a loss, we own it as a family. For the sake of Christ. And the enemy loves when we suffer. Or when we lose money. Or we lose at the sake of following Jesus. And he will kick up his feet. And he will toast to our demise. But when that happens, we cannot be short-sighted. We cannot be short-sighted. I know it's easy for us to say, Mordecai, look, don't be short-sighted. Esther's going to save the day. Like, he doesn't get that now. He doesn't know that. And we don't know the outcome of things, not even tomorrow. So we cannot be short-sighted. And what I mean is short-sighted in understanding what God is up to. Haman thinks that he's got the people right where he wants them, and he's going to do with whatever, do whatever he wants to the Jews. We don't need to put our eyes and our attention on the enemy, his posture, his position of satisfaction, his comfort, his pleasure, his insidious joy. But we need to recall the promises of God. Let me remind you of one in Psalm chapter 2. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. You want to talk about a powerful decree going out to the world. Here it is. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Jesus is our king. Jesus sits on the throne with full reign and power. The powers of the enemy in this world may toast to our demise, but the king of heavens laughs at their puny and pathetic power. It is to this king of kings that we owe our lives. And it is to this king of kings that, that drank the wrath of God down to the dregs on our behalf. And it is this king of kings who has reserved the final toast of the Passover for that final blessing at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in that day, in the future, the, the wicked kings and the rulers of this world will be put to death and we all alongside Mordecai and the saints of old and the saints of new will lift our voices together and with one harmonious act, we will lift a toast and drink with gladness to the king who took away the sins of the world. That is the hope that we have. And that is where we are to look. If you do go to Arkansas and you go down to Hawkbill's Crag, not only do you have to consider the risks, which you do, you also get to behold the beauty that surrounds you at the same time. 
Sometimes it's, it's hard to see the beauty beyond the fear of approaching the crag, walking along very narrow paths, seeing sheer drop-offs. And it was really terrifying for me the whole time. I may be a huge human being and may appear very tough and loud and aggressive, but I can, I can be very scared when it comes to things like that and terrified. Who laughed at me? But there was something truly amazing when you approached the crag, something beyond the fear of compliance. And it was the awesome and stunning beauty of overlooking miles and miles of the Ozark Mountains. Sometimes just stepping to the edge in faith, even when it's hard, does lead us to something far greater and beyond us. Church, it's time for us to step to the edge, to take the risk, to turn aside from compliance to the world and to step to the edge in faith and trust in the Lord. As you step out in faith, knowing that it may cost you something great, you must never lose sight of the beauty of Christ before you. Do not look down and grow weak in fear of sudden loss or death, but rather look up and behold the beauty and the kindness of your God and his grace to sustain you in his arms.